Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 93 to Innsbruck. Back to Innsbruck. Ah, you know what? I will never turn you down if you say we're going to go to Innsbruck. I said it last time. I love that place. (laughs) Guys, it's not exactly a cop-out. It's the biggest suspense we ever had on our show because Alex asked me at the beginning of the previous episode, Paul, remember to ask me about my bus experience at Innsbruck. And I never did. Oh, yeah. So I thought, <laughs> That's worth... Yeah, okay. So at the end of this episode, you're going to let us know what happened with the buses. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's bizarre. Also, it's uh, freaking cold here in the UK. I don't know in your neck of the woods. So I, I think um, winter destination is still kind of appropriate. appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I was reading about Innsbruck Airport. It's a difficult airport to land to, actually. I didn't realize... It's a very difficult airport to land. Well, because it's surrounded by mountains. And actually, yeah. not only is it a difficult airport to land at, it's a quite a difficult airport to take off out of. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, I, I can't remember if I said this one last time, but I'll tell you the story later when we talk about the airport about actually taking off. And there's a different procedure and the pilot warned us about it. So it was, yeah, it's quite an airport. I wanted a European airport to balance our show. And uh, we couldn't choose any airports in either Italy or France because they are on strikes. Uh, oh, I know. We, we, <laughs> If you want to travel these days, yeah, in France is the air traffic control, so it's going to mess up the entire operation, even from here to the UK. In Italy, it's Air Italy, Alitalia, and the staff at the airports. Jeez, I'm glad I'm not going through Italy anytime soon. Yeah, and for reference, guys, we're recording today on Monday the 6th of May 2019. It's a day off here in the UK. You won't get this episode, however, until the 12th of May. So there might be, as always, the usual caveat. Some stuff we're going to say that won't be relevant anymore by the time you're hearing this. Anyway, (laughs) uh, and yes, a little note about the sound. I've switched my entire equipment, so I'm not exactly sure how it will (laughs) end up uh, sounding at the end. Please forgive me, because I still don't know what I'm doing with all my new equipment here for uh, for microphones and stuff. So far, so good, though. So that's a good bit. And although we never truly focus on SoundCloud, I was told by uh, Nimrod Kramer at nnimrodd that if you're using the SoundCloud app, you were not seeing the latest episode. So I fixed it somehow. So now you should be able to see the latest uh, episodes on top of the app. I mean, let us know in case that uh, still happens. Uh, We are not the kind of guys who ask for iTunes, Apple podcast reviews, but we get some and we're always very happy to get some we do. We had one from Dominic TWA from Denmark. Five stars. Thank you so much. A must listen for AV geeks. As an avid listener of many great aviation podcasts, this one steals the show. Great chemistry between Alex and Paul, as well as their deep knowledge. I don't know if we have, do we? Uh, About the aviation industry. Guarantees a podcast that is worth your time. Topical, but more importantly, it's fun. Their personal travel adventures spice up the show and paint an exciting picture of being a global traveler today. Well, that makes us sound a lot cooler than we are. (laughs) Exactly. Plus, we haven't flown since the last episode. There's no, like, uh, personal travel adventures to talk about in this one. Not this time. (laughs) 
Which is kind of rare, isn't it? It is, actually. It is. But we'll have some for the next one. Obviously, at least Amsterdam. And maybe you. Because we're flying uh, in sequence. I think I'm flying, I'm coming back. You're flying, you're coming back. I'm flying, I'm coming back. Which, as always, in every year, May and June will prove hard for us to record. Yes. Also, we assessed in the last episode something very important about the foundation, the philosophy of this show. Alex is right. <laughs> uh, I think you should have a conversation with my wife about that. <laughs> And uh, there was one thing that you said, and I countered you, and I shouldn't have. Yes, Zip Air is the actual name of the new JAL low-cost long-haul. I mean, by the time we recorded, they had decided to use the code name for the actual name of the company. I didn't have read the news. And that's probably why Alex, you know, he read that and then he was probably confused because I was countering him. But the actual name is Zip Air Tokyo. In the lines of Vanilla Air, it's not that great. Yeah, I, I thought that it wasn't going to be this because there was some other entity with a similar name. What did I, I can't remember what I said. The branding looks like some software company from 1994 or, or, or something like that, but it's not great. Hopefully it it evolves. I don't know what's going to happen here, but Hey, you know, if I can get to Japan cheaper as a result of this, then they can call it whatever the hell they want. Yeah. The branding company that developed the logo, which basically is Times New Roman on Word, uh, (laughs) says that the name brings the English phrase to zip and also means to travel across zip codes. And Tokyo was added because the airline would be based in one of the most advanced cities in the world. I mean, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced <laughs> either. Anyway, look at the logo, or at least something they wrote on, on Word is not that great. And as we said, they will fly the first two Dreamliners-8s, I think, next year. It will initially focus on shorter routes in Asia. The development of longer routes, especially to North America, will only uh, be coming later. It seems uh, like they're going into a very crowded market. But still, good luck. Yep. And uh, JAL has received its first A350-9 uh, I mean, usually I don't cover when an airline receives a new aircraft, but have you seen delivery? Yeah, it's... Why did they keep the big Airbus A350 on it? Did they forgot to remove it after the paint job? <laughs> well, a lot of airlines do this, but they do it if they're the first or among the first to receive the type. Yeah. Not the 32nd airline to receive the type. Um, but it's a very I mean, Japanese thing, isn't it? I was about to say, Jolly's the first one to receive the 350 in Japan, probably. Uh, no? There's this thing, isn't there, between JAL and ANA. They're always yeah. trying to find something to one-up <laughs> the other. When when JAL was given their fifth star by Skytrax, ANA no longer had exclusive rights to Japan's five-star airline. So now they say Japan's biggest five-star airline. <laughs> So it's now 350. So, uh, and when they had the Dreamliner, remember when ANA got the Dreamliner, it was 787 across the side of it. So uh, it's it's kind of cute, I think. Yeah, it is. And then I ended up having 18 of those 350 900, and they've also ordered 13 1000 versions. So they'll have quite a few. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to, to fly that. Still in Japan, uh, one of our listeners, Dan Foster at DJ Fast on Twitter awesome episode as always and he replied about our same day changes he's in japan right now and jolly are always great at putting me on an earlier departure on my regular trips from haneda to itm and top tip use the japan explorer pass discounted fare it gets you from tokyo to osaka for five quid what oh we need (laughs) to look into this so i did so there's japan explorer pass 
There's the ANA Experience Japan Fair. So it's a similar thing. You have lots of these. You even have One World, I think, also has a fair like that. So it's not specifically JAL. And uh, Star Alliance, I think, also has a fair like that. And ANA and JAL have 20 different fairs. But these two ones, Japan Explorer Pass and ANA Experience Japan Fair, these two ones seem to be pretty darn good. Wow, yeah, that does sound good. So uh, thank you, Dan, for this tip. Why did I never use this? Yeah. It's very cheap. <laughs> it is cheap. And the answer from Ed Parsons, Blade, the helicopter service in New York. He says, yes, it was super easy. He got to sit next to the pilot. Nice. <laughs> and it took literally five minutes to the FBO at JFK from Hudson Yards. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to need to find an excuse to do that now. So uh, we're recording Monday 6. I was not supposed to be on the notes, but wow, that land crash. I don't know how to name that from yesterday in Moscow from yeah. that uh, Sukhoi SSJ-100. Wow. Well, the footage that you sent it to me, and it was that initial image of this fireball basically rolling down the runway, and it looked like Sioux City all over again. Um, but that turned out that there's, as these things always happen, they're it developed very, very, very quickly. And because we live in the age of smartphones and social media, we were given a mixture of image, video, and speculation at an astounding rate. But I think what we know is that it was a Sukhoi Superjet 100 from Aeroflot going from Moscow to Murmansk. And they were leaving, but stopped the climb at about 10,000 feet and said they'd lost communication and then pretty much all electronics. They weren't able to communicate after that, and they just used the transponder to set the code that they'd lost um, all communications. And then they they decided that it was too dangerous to dump fuel over Moscow, so they came in very heavy and very hot. And what we initially thought was that the plane caught on fire in the air and landed on fire. But then you sent me another angle which showed the plane landing and looking like it was doing a go-around, but actually bouncing. I mean, it's hard to tell, but it looked like it bounced yeah, it looked 50, like it bounced. 60 feet in the air. Yeah. And then came down again. And then I think the second time it landed, that's when it caught fire. Probably the gear was uh, damaged and couldn't hold the plane because he really landed super hard. Super hard and super fast. And... There were people listening to the ATC as, you know, there's always people like that uh, out there. And I'm one of them. And they said that they lost radio contact at 10,000 feet and never said another thing until they landed. Well, you know, landed and crashed. When they came out initially, they said that everybody had survived. Everybody had been evacuated. But sadly, that's not the case. And so far, 41 people have been pronounced dead, which is just a tragedy. There's a lot of other, they're not facts yet, but reports of an, a lightning strike at some point that may have or may not have done something. Usually they're innocuous to airplanes, but it sounds like it may have been a contributing factor. It definitely sounds like an electrical failure of some part. Whether or not that had anything to do with the fire will remain to be seen. But apparently it was passengers who alerted the crew to the fire, which is weird. Yeah, that sounds very strange. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The lightning usually... Planes are made in such a way that they can neutralize the polarization. So I don't know what exactly happened, but there was seemingly, like you say, a total loss of electronics, which on the Sukhoi means that it went from normal low to direct low, which is you have the basics of flying. You're literally flying a brick. 
Does that explain why they landed so hard? I don't know. We don't want to over-speculate because we don't know. The one thing that I've learned, and I'm not sure it's true, so maybe you know, Alex, or maybe one of our listeners know, it seems that the Sukhoi, the SSJ-100, cannot dump fuel. Uh, the fuel there's, there's no way for this aircraft to land which fuel. Is not, which is not unprecedented for an no it's not i don't know how many other short you know smaller airplanes don't have that ability either because i think they can burn a lot easier and they don't have that much fuel but i'm still i'm glad that let's say half of the passengers were able to to exit the plane but it's, it's still still dire yeah it's, but it's the, the one the one thing that really struck me very early on and it did the same to you we're seeing these images almost live and the one thing for me that struck me very heavily is the absence of fire emergency services. It seemed to me they took forever. I mean, even if there was no communication from 10,000 feet, the squawk was, you know, they knew there was an airplane in distress. Yeah. I mean, the simple fact that there's no more communication means that there's distress. And it seems that it took, usually these these guys arrive at like 90 seconds or something. It seemed on the images that it took like, and I'm not here to dis, again, maybe there's other explanations, but it didn't help because the airplane, plane was apparently filled with fuel clearly it burned super quickly which probably also led to the the death but i mean didn't strike you the fact that he yeah i i think so um from what i read the the emergency services arrived in two minutes okay after the plane had impacted though so the plane landed burst into flames and then two minutes later they arrived it took 48 minutes to put the fire out wow which you know just 48 minutes um there's just all that fuel and I think uh, because there was this lack of communication, they didn't know how serious. The, the, I think for all of the airport or air traffic control or emergency services knew they just lost radios. But you're right. I think I don't know anything about this, but my limited knowledge leads me to believe that when any time an airplane squawks a certain emergency transponder yeah. code, they by routine just deploy them at the at the end of the runway. Yeah. Doesn't seem to have been the case here, but I don't know. I don't know. And obviously, obviously some passengers were taking their luggages on the way out. And uh, you yeah. know, we discussed that when was the last time maybe with the Emirates. Vegas or, uh, oh yeah, yeah. The Emirates. And we said, you know, we don't know how we would behave and how people behave in, you know, stressful situations, etc. The one that's purely armchair. I was never engulfed in flames. But the one thing that really struck me is that in my head, I'm like, maybe I'm wrong. The situation that happened, for instance, in, in Dubai, the plane is in one piece and maybe some people got, oh, it's as if we landed. Here, clearly, there's fire over the thing. Why would you even start taking your luggage? You know, there's one thing like to have a false sense of safety thinking, oh, we landed and it's fine and you should still be, you know, fast. Here, there was one image from the inside. Some somebody took a, a video up on landing. I mean, there's clearly like flames everywhere. Why would you stop? And I mean, and again, I don't know. Maybe you know your mind kicks in into taking your luggage, but it, it could have contributed to a few more deaths. I think it. I think it. I mean, the general. There's been an uproar from the aviation community that this happened. That people, despite the flight crew and the cabin crew, begging people. You know, if if worse comes to worse, just get out, just get out. And not just one or two, but lots and lots of people at the front of the airplane took their bags with them. And I yeah. think it's very safe to say that they caused 
more than a handful of deaths from people who who weren't able to get out in time. The the seatbelt thing, we always make fun of the seatbelt safety video. But as you say, when people panic, sometimes your brain doesn't work the way you think it's going to, and you fumble with the seatbelt. That's different from making a conscious decision to go into an overhead bin and grab an object. Like, that is... I can't even imagine what would be going through your head as you as 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 people are screaming and the flames are licking at your at your heels yeah. that you will go. I just need to grab my Prada bag really quickly because it costs a lot of money. You're going to be dead, and there are other people who are already dead. I mean, I I, I cannot fathom it. Yeah, I would run for my life, literally. Yeah, and not like try to grab even. I, I wouldn't even care about my passport or nothing. I mean, whatever. I'm just leaving. The thing will explode in a minute. I don't know. From what I read, there's a book called uh, The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why by um, Amanda Ripley. And she said that, I'm paraphrasing here, but the urge to gather your belongings is so ingrained in us that even when instructed not to do so, people will still grab what is theirs. That's She tells the story uh, of the September 11th attacks and this woman who was she wanted she needed to bring something with you know with her and so she grabbed a novel she was reading not her purse or a bag but a novel that instinctive behavior i think is explains a little bit of it here but it's still how many lives were lost as a result of this first it's a tragedy for the people who lost their lives and uh, it's also a bit sad because we we said that we both would like to fly this new sukhoi ssj 100 it also could make trouble for the actual program of the Tsukoi. Yeah, which has been dogged with um, dispatch reliability issues. A lot of its initial customers have decided yep. to cancel orders and return the airplane. CityJet, Volaris, uh, no, Interjet in Mexico, not Volaris, which is a shame. I don't know what the future for this for this airframe is, but Russian air aviation has never had the best safety record. And, you know, the statistics prove that. However, this is the... For Aeroflot, which has gone through a total transformation in the last two decades, it was their first hull loss in five years and the first fatal accident in 23 years. That's a reasonable safety record. I agree. There are others in the in the Western world and all over the world that have much more recent hull losses and fatal accidents, and I, th- I think that that shouldn't be overlooked. The more we know about this, or the more that we learn about this, the more that we'll come to appreciate that the the cabin crew were the heroes here as well. And uh, there was a, p- a passenger that got off and said, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the cabin crew. So there's some stories developing there that I think are, are going to be worth revisiting in the weeks and months to come. Well, it's still sad. It is. I don't like, uh, is. I don't like to see um, these things and um, creates a sense of panic to people, especially now people are kind of you're putting everything together. Oh, the 737 Maxes are grounded. Oh, this. I know, I like know. They mix everything in their heads and, you know, flying is uh, dangerous. I'm like, oh my God, you know. Anyway, talking about another aircraft or happy news, the Stratocruiser Cruiser did its first actual flight. How cool um, is that thing? <laughs> huge, man. Yeah. What will it be used for? Is it to launch rockets or something? Yeah, exactly. To launch, to launch rockets into space. It's supposed to be a, a more... Well, much, much cheaper, orders of magnitude cheaper than having to strap the payload and get out of Earth's orbit. You give the the rocket itself a little bit of a boost, much much like uh, Virgin Galactic has been trying to do with, with that. And actually, they're not the only ones. By, by taking it up on the bottom of a conventional, quote-unquote, airplane and then launching it from there, I guess, re- reduces the cost exponentially. It looks like a Transformers. It does. It, it looks completely <laughs> like something that 
that uh, Hayao Miyazaki would come up with. Yeah, exactly. But his scale composites, anything that scale composites comes up with is always kind of goofy looking, but in a cool way. <laughs> and it was made from, wasn't it made from two 747 400s? Yeah, I think we talked Frankenstein'd about Frankensteined it. The, yeah, I think they, they like cut them in half and, you know, exactly, something like that. I think you're right. I, and I had I'm like a- two cockpits on separate pylons yeah it, i i think it's super cool can you imagine the crew management here like no my cockpit has authority here yeah. no my cockpit has authority <laughs> it's uh yeah it's just the no, neatest no. looking thing i've ever seen maybe one day we'll, we'll get an invite it would be really cool just to do like a you know, like a few minutes in this thing so before we would get into that we we always would love to have access to a lounge and priority pass that we both have yeah as released there Awards, the best lounges in the world. The winner is the Sala VIP Internacional at Quito International Airport in Ecuador. Have you ever been there? No. <laughs> Same. Now I want to go. <laughs> so how do they determine this? Is it is it done by a panel or is it purely based on... Uh... I think it's a mix. Okay. I'm not mistaken. It's a, it's, a, it's a mix. Because, you know, I think we can... Can we put reviews? You certainly used to be able to. I don't know if you... If you still can. But then that's what Lounge Buddy is so great for. Yeah. In Europe, the best one... Um, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all the lists, guys. But in Europe, the best one is the one at Riga, the Prime Class Riga Business Lounge, a terminal in Riga. Uh, we covered Riga, and I've seen it. It's actually really nice. In Africa and Middle East, the uh, Achlan Lounge at Terminal 3 Concourse B in uh, Dubai, DXB. Though I would say that the Achlan Lounge... At Terminal 3 Concourse D, you remember I mentioned it, guys, when I went there, when I was doing this big layover between flying to Dubai and then to Hong Kong to San Francisco. I think it's it's even better. In Asia Pacific, the best one is Miracle First Class Lounge Concourse D, Bangkok. Hmm. I can see that I've never tried any of these. In North America, maybe you've, you've done it. It's called <laughs> Lounge 19 in Terminal 1 at Mexico City Airport. Uh... Didn't you I tell th- me that you tried half of the lounges at this airport? Yeah, um, didn't try this one. Just from the pictures, I kind of want to know how it won. <laughs> it's tiny. <laughs> Is it a, an analogy of priority passes? You know, you never know what you're getting. Yeah, I think that's it. absolutely the case. And in many cases, <laughs> you know, the uh, airport concourse is probably going to be a lot more fun. But in other cases, the priority passes saved my butt on a number of occasions. Yeah. And to finish, uh, Latin American Caribbean, uh, it was... El Dorado Lounge in Bogota Airport in Colombia. I'm going to try that because I want to go to Bogota. So there you go. Guys, if you've been to any of those, yeah. are they worth actually being the best lounges in the world? I would I, love to know. I would love to know as well. The airport that had one of the lounges, the best lounges that everybody kept talking about, of course, was Ataturk, the old Istanbul airport. The reviews from the new lounge are pretty good. People say it's very reminiscent from the old lounge. I think they actually even you know took some of the furniture and placed it in the new one. So probably that's why they have a reminiscence from the old one. What is interesting, because I don't think we covered it when we talked about this big move, it, what will happen with Ataturk Airport? It's 12 million square foot terminal building. You know, yes. so this, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, what happened with Kai Tak? What happened in Hong Kong? What is... Um, yeah, exactly. They had all these grand ideas, and actually there was a point where they thought they were going to keep it open for civil traffic, or they were going to make it a regional air- airport, but that would ne- that never even got off the drawing board. It turned into a rather disappointing mishmash of high-density housing, a cruise port, cruise ship, 
terminal. <laughs> no wonder you hate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what else did? Oh, there's like a shopping mall. And actually, they, they were going to turn it into some green space as well. I don't know if they actually did it. It leaves the feeling of uncompleteness. Yeah. It's so long after, like, especially Hong Kong, you know, the you need space. Why? You know, They're like, opening why two MTR stations nearby this year. Okay. Um, oh. Kai Tak MTR station and Song Wong Toy, which is on the, the east-west corridor, if you know Hong Kong. So well, that will help because when there's public transport, there's a spillover effect compared to buses. The advantage of rail is that there's a sense of commitment. If you put rail there, people will come. Yeah. The line will stay. So people make investments in shops or buying a house or flat, whatever. Athens is another good example. The Elinikon, the, the old airport, we're talking like, what, I think it was 2001 where they transferred. It's still there. Parts of it is now used for temporary housing for refugees, but that's clearly not like a long-term plan. And you have this huge amount of space, you know, like, so that's exactly what Ataturk is facing. First, it's not closed yet. I think cargo will keep going there for another year. The switchover will be uh, slower than they did for passenger traffic. It will remain open as a VIP airport, so probably politicians, etc. General aviation will have also some ability to land and depart from there, so it will be still an active airport. By the way, it's now called ISL, which was the IATA codename for the other one before the switchover. But the one thing that caught my eye is that there's a proposal to transform a big part of the terminal into a convention center, with direct access to planes and would save a lot of the economical activity near the airport, especially the hotels that now like, uh, so we're done, right? So if you were to build a convention center, you already have the hotel capacity nearby. I don't know if that would actually exist, but just imagining, you know, imagine you and me, Alex, we, we go on conferences, you land, you go through the gates, you go on stage, you go back to your gate and you leave all in the same yeah, place. That would I, be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, know how it would work. I but, don't know how it uh, worked, but I'm, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So still talking about lounges. We cannot wait for the lounge at uh, the new midfield terminal in um, Abu Dhabi. We still don't know where it's going to open. I caught an interview, I don't know if you've seen this, from uh, the, the previous CEO, Hogan, the one who basically built Etihad, the equivalent of Tim Clark for Etihad to creating this airline setting up from the beginning to until, what, a year and a half ago when he left or something? He was asked what he would do differently if he had to redo it all over again. He said nothing. Really? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think Etihad is a fantastic airline. I really enjoy, now that I have experienced their short haul as well, I feel like I've got a reasonable expectation of what it's like. I've done economy and business. I, I really like what they do. I think strategically, some of those acquisitions perhaps were were not best placed, I, but I don't know. I mean, that's just armchair quarterbacking at its best, but it it feels like they've struggled. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with Jet, although they did leverage those Heathrow slots to yeah. add more service to for Etihad. So that that's not a cheap proposition. To be fair to him, first of all, I don't think he would actually publicly say because, you know, he was under the command of the rulers. So yeah. he maybe doesn't want to go like, oh, they didn't have any strategy. Or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's never going to be a good strategy. Is it, it? He doesn't want to throw everything under the bus. So, yeah. I caught this story on one mile at a time, and Ben, I think, writes <laughs> cheekily, because Ogan now has set up a financial advisory company in Switzerland, along with other ex-Etihad employees, and he says, financial advices from you guys. <laughs> Ouch. 
Okay, to uh, more. Are we living in an age of the rebirth of customer experience? Because they all go through these contritions. We talked about United in a previous episode. I caught a, a phrase from Alex Cruz, the BA CEO, who said, if you repeatedly create a sensation or feeling of ripping people off, they leave. Yeah, well, so if you know that, why don't you up your game, Alex? Yeah. <laughs> the Alex Cruz, not Alex Hunter. I know, I think both are applicable. Um, no, I, <laughs> I think he's afraid from JetBlue arriving. Really? I think so. Really? I think they started doing a lot of advertising about, hey, guys, if you want to go to the US, look, we have lounges, we have direct access to all these cities, and this is great, and la, la, la. They, they must have a feeling that JetBlue is it's not Norwegian. Sure. I think when you... You know, we've talked about this before ad nauseum, but when you expose a customer to competition that has a very good product, you set their expectation of what could and should be the experience, right? So yeah, you may be you may be onto something. I'm a big fan of JetBlue. I did finally book my return flight from Boston and I am going to go on JetBlue. Ah. So United over there, JetBlue back. I had a long discussion with some friends who are in revenue management, not at JetBlue, but when I told them the prices and they said, you know, you've been out of America for too long. Those are good prices uh, <laughs> for, for premium and it's a good product. So yeah. I've always said I'm a big fan of JetBlue. I'm very excited for them to to start flying to the to London whenever they actually get around to doing that. So maybe that's right, and maybe BA will up their game a little bit. You have to make sure that the overall proposition of what you offer, not just the ticket price, but everything that comes with it, has to be correct. Otherwise, you will lose customers. Yeah, well, so yeah, of, of course. But sometimes you read that and you're like, every time I try to go on the app from BA, I'm getting some error yeah at the same time as they do i'm like guys i mean <laughs> they i um, want to like you but you're, you're you're right and i they launched this huge worldwide sale uh, thursday maybe and yeah, there were some pretty spectacular prepares and i took advantage of a few of them and there were reports on flyer talk and twitter of the whole website going down availability search is not working that's on top of the existing bugs that we all know and love at this point they're like family members <laughs> you know i i when am i flying ba again couple of weeks, three weeks, short haul. So then, and then I have so many legs on BA long haul and short haul in the next seven or eight weeks. And I, I will cast an even finer eye over my experience. Please do. So talking about BA, you must have gotten this email about the change of Avios, the freaking flyer program of BA. I didn't understand a thing. No, no, Just no I didn't change. else. And I, I, I kept rereading it and going, am I am I stupid? Because I can't figure out what they're saying. <laughs> it, it is basically uh, lots of things are going to change, but we're not going to tell you what they are. Yes, the blog thing. It's the same. And then you have the FAQ and nothing is answered. You're like, so why do you do announcement to tell us something is going to change? Yeah, it's very weird. It's very weird. But I guess, and I went to Flyer Talk and I read a bunch of blogs, and of course there was lots of opinion flying around. But from what I gather, the cost for booking Avios flights on partners is going up yeah. to be uh. in line with all of the other One World partners. So I don't know how that will manifest itself in actual money or what we can expect to see. All I know is it seems to be impossible to book on partners with Avios anyway, so I can't imagine it's going to cause me a whole lot of <laughs> a lot of bother. I can never find availability. Neither can the call center staff, because I called to try and see if I could use Avios to get from Boston to the Bay Area, and the lady said, we can never find them this far out. American, keep them for their 
frequent flyers, which completely understandable. And then they release an allocation closer, but I wasn't going to wait for the price to go up. So they're kind of useless at that point. I think the kind of route you mentioned was one of the triggers because if you were living in the US and had both Avios and American Airline Advantage, was the name again? Of yeah. Was, yeah. It was cheaper to use your Avios for the same route that your American Airlines, what they're doing here, let's be fair with BA, they're just equalizing, like you said. Yes. People that play with miles will be unhappy, but it just makes sense, probably. Does. The one comment I caught on Flyer Talk, which I really love, was looks like the head of communication at Marriott has taken a new job at BA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it was kind of, you know, why bother saying anything until, you know, it, I think that's fine to warn people that changes are coming, but you can't do it in such a opaque way. You, yeah. you know, either say changes are coming and they'll take these forms and we'll let you know when they're concrete. But this sort of wishy-washy, maybe we'll tell you, maybe we won't uh, attitude um, was a little bit frustrating. We had a bit of pushback from our previous episode because we were like, you know, not enthusiastic, happy about the changes United was making. And I'm going to just take one. Noah F. Shearer on Twitter, who said, I'm all for United changing their ways and improving. I've just yet to see any signs of what you guys have talked about on the podcast in the domestic U.S. market and United. We don't know. We, we just... Uh, Kirby, the, the chairman, uh, after... Um, what's his name? I'm tired today. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, Munoz. Munoz. Munoz, Munoz yeah. <laughs> yes. After, after Munoz went to this act of contrition, also kind of went not exactly in contrition himself, because Kirby said that... Uh, basically divided the world between people like you and me, Alex. We know the rules. We know how to fly. We know what to expect. We're going to be disappointed sometimes, but we still know what to expect. This is the majority of the flying public doesn't. And for them, the rules don't make sense. Hence, they're going to be, he didn't use that word, but they're going to be pissed off by the time they arrive in the aircraft. So I'm saying it's not contrition because in that sense, he's trying to basically put the blame on security sucks, the airport sucks, Getting to your airport sucks. Everything before us sucks. And I'm like, yeah. No, well, that's BS because you, I agree. you, yeah. As an airline, you have, you don't just get the passenger when they step across from the jet bridge to the airplane. You've had them since they booked their ticket and you have so many exactly. opportunities Ooh. to, to nurture that relationship, whether it's the first time the passenger's flown with you or the thousandth time. I just don't agree with that. Yes, Same. there are airport environments over which you have very little control and you have to work harder in those environments. But you know them. You know the airline them. knows. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Knows the, the you know the pressure points. So you work you know around the pain, yeah, points, the pain points. Yes. You know, and you 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 optimize flow to, to, to deal with that. And then that excuse goes right out the window when you're in a hub. Yes. And you own the experience from, from curb to, to gate, you know? And and that I, I fully agree with you. It's a it's a total cop out, I think. It's a cop out. And the remainder of his intervention kind of proves the point because he goes further and says that United, Delta, and AA always get the complaints and not Southwest, kind of saying, yeah, these guys get a free pass because they're smaller and people like to lash out at us as if, again, it's like more a behavioral habit from the public, which is unrelated to the actual experience. And I think, again, come on, people actually do lash out against Southwest when Southwest sucks. It's a bit of like, uh, oh, we are the poor boys because 
people know us that's why we expose and they don't like us i mean come on yeah it, it's a cop out again yeah it's it's frustrating and i hope that i really do hope and i i have had a lot of reports um, although when i did ask people who i should fly back people said anybody but united but yeah i was about to say so yeah go, go on for a little bit about that you asked and you had so many answers i had a lot of interesting people answers. were like go to new york and then fly back with delta or whatever so yeah what was, the, was there a consensus or not i said who would you pick on Transcon? Delta, United, Alaska, or JetBlue? Premium, Boston to San Francisco. And I CC'd a few people, including Jason Rabinowitz, and I got really interesting answers. The general consensus was JetBlue or Delta. Oh, okay. That that was basically the overwhelming feedback. But the other people were saying, and I'm quoting here, avoid United like the plague. Um <laughs> Let's see, where was the other one? Yeah, there was a few, some people have deleted them. But yeah, it was very vehemently, don't go on United. And people were saying, don't go on United, which has lie flat 757s. They said, go on Delta, which does not have lie flat on that. That makes no sense to me. I don't think so either. So I think that there's sort of, in a way, and I hope that I'm not proven wrong here, this sort of lazy hate that I am absolutely guilty of for United. And I'm interested from a kind of scientific standpoint to experience it. Although actually LA Flyer, who listens yeah. to the show and is in the industry from what I understand, he recommended the JetBlue Mint product, which is what I'm doing, or the United Life Flat Seat. Oh, there you go. You know, let's put the miles aside between Life Flat, an actual Life Flat, the other hand I have like some kind of old recliner. I mean no matter how great the old recliner might be, I think I might go for the lifeline. Yeah, I think I would too. I, I looked at some of those. The Delta one looks looks good. I don't know. I, I, I want to try Delta because everybody raves about them. And I haven't been mm -hmm. on Delta long haul other than a set of CRJ in decades. So I, I want to try and find an excuse to fly on them. I think the last time I've flown in domestic US was 2012. The Transcon products were not where they are today. So anyway, guys... We're not here to defend United at all costs, but Alex will be able to tell you after a scientific study of uh, every part of that <laughs> journey that he will do in July, is it, or August? August, beginning of August. So that will be probably episode 98 or something, guys. So you will have the, the full coverage of what United yeah. actually, actually I know is. that you guys can hardly wait. <laughs> <laughs> They've also covered the little cameras on their IFE. Probably what happened, that's my take. These guys, these airlines, in that case, United, bought, not off the shelf, because that would be too, uh, they, these things need to go through testing, but they bought tablets that have a camera on them, a yeah. camera hole at least on them. This is what is used to actually play the movie in front of you. There was a lot of outcry. Are they spying on me? And la, la, la. And to be frank, I get it. We live in the age of surveillance and your data and privacy stuff. So maybe actually covering them is a good PR move. Yeah, Singapore Airlines had the same thing and they were using essentially the same models. And I think they all came back with the same tack, if you will, like that you mentioned was, it's not doing anything. They're completely deactivated. It's built in for maybe some future applications like seat-to-seat -seat chat or communicating with the cabin crew and the galley. We have no idea because uh, we haven't come up with those ideas yet, nor has the manufacturer, but we replace these things once in a generation for an airplane. So it we makes sense to, to kind of slightly future-proof them, so yeah. but stop freaking out, which seems to be a completely rational and acceptable explanation. Singapore would probably end up doing the same, actually. Yeah. 
So uh, maybe if there was a camera, it could see that uh, what you're drinking when you're drinking on board. And I don't know how we missed this for three episodes in a row. We really do suck. BA has released a beer. I think it's a little bit a similar story than Cathay Pacific, as in this beer is specially brewed for BA. This beer has been brewed for high altitude, so for the palate switches that we experience at high altitude. It's called, and that's really cool, Speedbird 100. It's a pale ale, and it was developed by Brewdog. Yeah, it was. It was. Whilst cruising in a Dreamliner over Scotland, which is pretty cool. That is cool. <laughs> and it will be available in lounges, which, same story than Betsy, is it actually good in lounges? I don't know. And it is already available on the air. Uh, you've not seen it yet yourself, right? No, I think when they switched over to the summer menu, which happened last week, two weeks ago, they introduced it on board and I, I flew just at the tail end of it. So I haven't seen it yet, but I'm flying on BA. Well, you'll fly tomorrow. So I'd be very interested to see if you can. Yeah, maybe I'll have, have it tomorrow. I mean, tomorrow. Have a breakfast yeah, beer. No, no, actually, I'm flying at a 6 p.m. flight. Oh, perfect. You have no yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So We had actually one of our listeners trying the Speedbird beer. Ah, uh, Blue Code. Of course. Poor beer, but the can is a nice collectible. <laughs> really? I'm surprised. I think BrewDog <laughs> do good work. But I'm still hoping to being able to try it out uh, tomorrow. I don't think it will be available in any other places than BA lounges and in the air though if you're an executive club member you are alex i am from now on i think you can get 10 percent discount on anything brew dog in their brew dog bars well now we can use our freaking flyer card in a bar which is a pretty cool thing nice well i'm sold uh i'm actually speaking of craig mccormick i i wanted to give him a shout out because this is this is super cool he listens to this podcast he listens to my other one mastication nation yeah. and i got a package the other day and it was from craig and from glen Affric brewery and he said he sent me a sweet letter saying i know you're not drinking at the moment but i still wanted to send you something so he sent me a case of their yet to be released sugar-free soft drinks oh wow yeah and not only are the are the cans beautiful the stuff is absolutely delicious and it, i think they have uh, six flavors, rhubarb, lemon and strawberry, elderflower, raspberry and coconut, cream soda, and fiery ginger. They're all amazing. Craig, you need to do these. You need to release them and maybe get them on an airline. But uh, I wanted to give Craig a shout out and go in Africa uh, because they, they, I think they're doing cool stuff. And they, whenever there's uh, anything to do with beer in the aviation world, uh, Craig is our kind of go-to guy. Oh, for sure. Are they fizzy? I mean, yeah, they're fizzy. Or... They're 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 soda for want of a better word but their their diet and their they're just delicious uh, i've tried i think we did a lot of tasting at me and my kids and uh <laughs> they're really really good really good so you're on to something here so do you know what's the worst drink for crew to serve you on board no sorry alex diet coke oh why is that <laughs> because it has the most fizz you add the pressurized environment the foam it creates when they serve it is huge. And that's the worst is Diet Coke on the rank. I, I don't know about those the from Craig. Craig here, don't worry, but you need to test them in, in the air. <laughs> I'm going to quote something. If all three passengers in a row ask for Diet Coke, I'll often get them started, take another tray drink orders, come back, serve more, 
take another order, come back, and finish Diet Coke. I believe it. I <laughs> There's believe another it. one which says that the time to serve a Diet Coke is the time it takes them to serve an entire row. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I can see that. And actually, it does taste very different in flight for that reason. Alex, you are the worst passenger ever. Because yeah, I am that guy. Sorry, flight crew. That's me. <laughs> well, but I've still wanted to try these things on Craig. Uh, are they going to be commercially available? Or are they like I a sure hope so. I, I think maybe, I mean, they look like they're ready to go. And yeah, yeah. I just saw Alex just showed me the Yeah, thing. I'll tweet out wow. a picture today but, uh, of the other ones. But yeah, I, I hope so. I don't know for sure. <laughs> I'm very, very looking forward to this. Craig. Great, great, great. Do it. And maybe actually since Gruco says Speedbird is a bad beer, maybe you could call PN and put these in some of your beers. There you go. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the air. Anyway, let's stay on more food and beer in airlines. Qatar Airways is releasing its new uh, food menus. It's called Cuisine. And of course, they write down that with Q-U-I-S-I-N-E. Cuisine. My God. Uh. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, you know, it looks pretty good. Uh, in economy, the food portions will be increased by between 25 and 50%. That's generous. That is generous. And there will be um, <laughs> Himalayan salted caramel popcorn. I don't know. Is it the salt that comes from the Himalayan or the caramel that comes from the <laughs> <it? laughs> mm, Good question. Or, or the popcorn. Um, in the same breath, Etihad is also launching a new uh, economy dining service. Also with a larger main course, and the cutlery will be 85% lighter. Yeah, they've, they're really focusing on this, aren't they? They Was it Qatar or Etihad as part of that that are doing the single-use plastic? They're, they're trying yeah. to, they did the first flight that wasn't single-use plastic. Yeah, so they're really Etihad. focused on not just the quality of the food, but on the sustainability of the food and the utensils and packaging and all that. So kudos to them. Not an easy thing to do. You can understand why they're making it lighter. I mean, of course, that's self-serving. But but, <laughs> yeah. but that's fine. That, there's nothing wrong with that. They also are refitting their 320 and 321. So you were flying, I think, on a 320? 321. To, to Delhi. So they're removing all the seatback screens in economy, adding, obviously, wireless IFE streaming technology instead. We talked ad nauseum about that in the past. But it's, it's interesting that people are still kind of pushing back, like, oh, I really love to have the IFE. Why are they removing the screens? I don't so understand no more. why people are pushing back in 2019. IFE through Wi-Fi is usually fine. As long as there's something. You'll be able to stream 300 hours of free IFE content to your device. 300 hours? You're never going to be in A320 for 15 hours, so yeah, fine, I one guess. Would hope. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's not bad. No, it really isn't. That will save Etihad around 18 tons in aircraft weight per year to, of course, reduce the fuel costs. So it's, come on, we never had IFE in economy and short haul in Europe anyway. No. So like, people are complaining, but come on. Do you have IFE in Transcon economy in the US? Yeah, a lot of actually airlines still have seatback IFE in economy. Almost everybody does, but they are yeah. aggressively removing it in favor no of No surprise. This. No, I don't think... I, I th but back to food. Back to food, because we're not a mastication nation, but a little bit more food. Singapore Airline has introduced a farm-to-plane program. They teamed up with a company called Aerofarms. They'll be able to pick products from the equivalent of 390 acres of farmland, which is obviously, you know, these new technologies when you have... You know, there's no soil, but they use water and nutrients, I guess, and like lights on top. And you have like these infinite amounts of uh, racks with food. I've a friend of mine actually developed something like that in, in New York. That's and so cool. It's, it's really cool. And they will have that very close to the airport. So 
in the morning, they'll be able to pick the produce and put them directly in the, the flights that will be featured in both business and print economy menus. That's cool. That's- and actually, you just reminded me about the, the rooftop at JFK, JetBlue's rooftop. Mm. I got some clarification on that. Oh, tell me. They, uh, they do grow produce on there, and all of it is donated to Grow NYC, which is a local uh, sustainability charity. They produce a 1,000 pounds of blue potatoes a season and 2,000 different types of herb plants, which are grown in recycled milk cartons. And then the soil itself comes from food waste collected at Terminal 5, which is then composted in upstate New York. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? That is very cool. That is very cool. Oh, we're talking about Singapore Airlines departing from New York. The, the farm will not be in Shanghai. The farm will be in New Jersey. Oh, so, I wonder yeah. if it's the same. Uh, huh, that'd be interesting. So you cannot eat your own potato on top of the rooftop on, what is it, Terminal 6 or Terminal, Terminal 5? five. Uh, uh, no, <laughs> disappointingly. You're flying from Boston, so you won't be able to see that. I know, it's disappointing. I am going to New York a lot in the next few weeks, but I'm not... Am I from here or from when you'll be in, in, in California? From here. Oh, so yeah, no, so not Terminal 5. Are you going mostly BA? Uh, BA in American, and even my intra-US stuff is unfortunately not served by JetBlue. But maybe you can do a layover at uh, the TWA hotel. Yeah, I know. I, I, <laughs> I need to find a way to do that. <laughs> so um, after all this food and all these drinks, you obviously need to go to the toilet. And I found this graph uh, that was pretty fantastic. <laughs> On the average number of toilets per passengers around the world per airline, and they're all triple sevens, three hundreds, so it's actually a fair comparison. Here, we're only going to talk about economy and premium economy, and it's really interesting because you can see that if you really want to have a good ratio of toilet per passenger, <laughs> yeah, you should be flying Air Canada. Apparently, is good, and Cathay Pacific Regional is also very good. The one you should avoid is British Airways <laughs> is the actual worst. Really? I'm not sure I would ever choose an airline depending on the number of toilets per passengers. Yeah, I don't think I would either. <laughs> In fact, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> but it's I like I like studies like that. Uh, Slavo Tuleya on Instagram, one of our also loyal listeners. <laughs> When I was flying BA first class, you know, we had a little back and forth, and he was showing me pictures of business class in our China. This is we're talking about food. This is really funny. They keep serving me vegetarian beef as the veggie option. Vegetarian beef. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, since we were talking about lavatories, another way to cram lavatories is to put uh, gold in them. There was this guy uh, that <laughs> was flying, I think. In Bangladesh, he was able to cram 30 pounds of gold in one single 777 lavatory, more than 100 pieces of gold bars, worth probably half a million dollars. Holy cow, I completely yeah, so missed the, this story. But how did he get in there? And the weight? Okay. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's not easy to hide. No, you would be trying. you'd be walking very differently, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, have you tried? Well, I just know that that's a lot of weight. <laughs> have you? I mean, I, I know we've already done this set of stories. It was this girl uh, probably two weeks ago who was traveling in Europe with Thomas Cook to avoid paying the overweight baggage fee. She had, I think, four kilos over the limit. She ended up wearing seven dresses, two pair of shoes, and two pair of shorts in the flight. 
or quote, I was boiling, absolutely boiling. Yeah, but I mean. <laughs> so was that worth, however long that flight was, was it worth that amount of discomfort? Apparently passengers took pity of her and offered to pack some of the stuff she had on her in their own luggage throughout the flight. So she ended up uh, being okay. But I, would you? I don't know how that works. <laughs> but you told me, didn't you, that Thomas Cook was, what's happening? Are they sending out? Yeah, it looks like that they're the, the broader Thomas Cook travel group, which includes Condor, Thomas Cook Airlines based up in Manchester, and I think one or two others, the mother company is trying to sell the or at least entertaining offers for the airline portfolio you know they they haven't been doing brilliantly for a while but it looks like lufthansa is probably the, the most obvious suitor i guess iag had early conversations but i think have said thanks but no thanks i think they have a lot of debt but what airline oh. doesn't so i don't know We'll see how that goes. I mean, they go to a lot of very, very interesting places from the UK. It would be a shame to see them disappear. I don't think you'll see them disappear, but I think they may get absorbed. Uh, talking about too much food, you don't go to the toilet, you have seven dresses on you, you're obviously too heavy. There is a company called Fuel Matrix that offers now a way to easily weigh every single passenger before they enter a flight or before they are actually checked in. It could be in the airport. They say the goal is not to fat shame passengers, but more to give a very detailed information to the aircraft so they know how much fuel they moved to yeah. embark and not rely on, on averages. But obviously, no matter what they say, people went into an outcry saying, this is bad, la, la, la. Was it not like in the Pacific, when Pacific Island was doing that, Samoa, or weighing passengers before flights? Yeah, I think you're right. At Fiji Airways. Maybe, maybe. maybe, that, uh, maybe I don't want to say that in stone, but it feels like it was. How would you feel about it? I mean, you, I do you, it. I mean, you, I'm going to Seattle in July with my family, and we're going to go on a seaplane. And when you book, they ask how heavy you are. And I totally get it. You have to. Those are small airplanes, and you need to know weight and balance. So totally fine. How would you feel about doing that in a 777? I would think it unnecessary. I know that Finnair in the past... Because they wanted to stop relying on, you know, the industry average of, you know, like you know, elevators. Yeah, this elevator fits 13 people mm -hmm. because, you know, the average is, I think, what, 80 kilos for a guy and 60 for a woman. I think that's the average in Europe or something. So that's how they work it out. That That's why they say 13, because they don't know. So Finnair, what they did for a little while, they did wait passenger before they boarded to update their averages. And that, I think it's fair. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think you we always have to remember that at the end of the day, they are averages. We're not all being tarred with the same brush here. And there's a reason for it. Safety. Though I'm sure that some low-cost airlines would like to have like the minimum amount of fuel to put. I'm very yeah. sure also that they wouldn't want to ask that question unless they absolutely had to. So maybe you don't need to be weighted before you enter a flight, but should you have actually an health check before <laughs> getting in a flight? Because although it's not an epidemic, there's been many, many cases of measles reported in flight in the past, what, six, seven months. Shouldn't that discussion have happened in the 50s and shouldn't we have gone past this now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's scary, actually, because an airplane is a great way to transmit yeah. disease. And we've regressed as a society to this bizarre anti-vaxxer movement uh, yeah. is putting a lot of people at risk. A lot of people at risk. Yeah. Uh, and I can understand why airlines are really worried about it. I bet you there are a lot of people at IATA who are spending their days and nights thinking about this. 
because there have been a number of incidents where flight crew or passengers have flown and then you know discovered they had uh, yeah. measles or something and that's just that's scary should we actually give like a license to fly to people i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, uh, from measles to more feedback. No, guys, don't worry. You are not full of eating. I didn't do that transition on purpose. As always, we get a lot of feedback from you guys. We never have time to actually respond to all of them. And we always have limited time to pick some of them to being used in our uh, show. So we're going to take a few because they're fun and actually very informative. First, Timur4000 on Twitter. You hear his name a lot because he often comments on our episodes. Thank you so much. It says that in the U.S., same-day changes, comes back to our stories, yeah. easy to change. Same-day changes are usually only allowed for free if you have status. I have both status on One World and Star, so obviously my experiences being rebooked have always been with a good status. I don't know how it would ha happen without. In the U.S., yeah. I, I think a lot of them still do same-day standby. I can't remember. Although I think I tried to do it with Southwest once, and they said it was going to cost 150 bucks. But I don't remember. I might have just completely made that up. But BA can't do it anyway, so. <laughs> At J2 Simpso on Twitter said about United that it provides free changes, same story, from 24 hours before departure for their gold and above elites. And he has that he's not a huge fan himself of the, I think it's a he, United livery. Kind of reminds me of these gems from BA. It sends us this picture of, do you remember these? What was the name? World BA, you know, where each... Oh, yeah, the world uh, tales. Yeah, they had, like, a variety of different tales. Yeah. Is it really? I mean... I like the United Delivery as... Yeah, as I'm sorry, sorry, sorry man. We do, we do like it. You'll, sorry, man. It's one of those things that, especially if you fly and see United Airlines a lot, will take some getting used to, but everything that changes takes getting used to. On Twitter, Colorado Mark, we spoke, I think, two or three episodes ago about very short flights, and he did Philadelphia to... BWI, where is BWI? Baltimore. Baltimore. Oh, thank you. On an old US Airways 737s, it was a 14-minute flight. Oh, cool. <laughs> but it was delayed for three hours. Oh, not cool. <laughs> and we got a, an email from Jeremy Dawson. Was it an email? Maybe it was a direct message. Sorry, guys, sometimes I lose track where you guys send us these things. So he's based in London, and when he goes to Canada, he usually flies BA to YYZ. And then she found uh, this little service by an airline called Fly GTA. And he flies from YTZ to his local airport. That's also 10, 15 minutes in an eight-seat Piper Navarro aircraft. And Ooh. I arrived to the small terminal at 18.03 for our 18.00 flight. And you can imagine my surprise to find a pilot waiting for me at the front door and then carry my back to the aircraft. Yeah, we don't get that with BA with the large aircraft. <laughs> no, although I have seen that with U.S. domestic carriers. I've always been really impressed by that. I think I mentioned it maybe 40 episodes ago. Strange to say that. Seeing a, you know, Envoy, actually it was Envoy Air, captain carrying a buggy up to uh, some parents that were waiting he carried it from the tarmac up the the steps of the of the that's great, jet though. bridge. And I was like, that's really cool. You know, not yeah. not you know, going, oh, I'm above this type of thing. Exactly. It was really impressive. Yeah. I don't think the captain would do that with your luggage, with your car and Alex. I doubt it. <laughs> Maybe Mark would do just because now he's listening to this and next time he sees you, he will say, Oh, I'm gonna do it just for the joke. There you go. Fly GTA shortest commercial flight in North America, ten minutes. So cool. Guys, if you know of, about any other very short commercial flights, I know we have here in uh, the UK 
these hops between Scottish islands. I think you have one is only 11 minutes or seven minutes. You can do that to visit, obviously, breweries, breweries, distilleries. Craig will actually hate me now. <laughs> distilleries. The funny bit is that when you fly these, because of the very unpredictable weather in Scotland, you fly for seven minutes, visit the whiskey distillery, the weather changes, the plane cannot leave, and then you're stuck, although the plane back would have only been seven minutes. And then you have probably one hotel, there's probably a room above the pub, and you end up paying way more than a Marriott. <laughs> um, Office Wayfinder, we mentioned him quite a few times, very kindly mentioned our podcast in his four must-listen podcasts about aviation. We're in good company because we're with AV Talk, the Runway Girl Network, and Airline Weekly Lounge, which is from Skift. So thank you so much for putting us at this level of uh, quality. I don't know if we deserve it. That's very kind. I've never listened to Airline Weekly Lounge by Skift. I will. But I listened to AV Talk and 2 X. We are more, you know, off the cuff, opinionated, and sometimes we f it up what we're saying, <laughs> and we <laughs> we're not like really like a source of information. I think so. Thank you so much to put us in such credible company. Yeah, it was very very nice to see that. And actually, I discovered some more podcasts, as you say, some of those I didn't know about. So I'm looking forward to tuning in. And um, yeah, one more. Rich Wergley. I don't know how you pronounce your last name. In R Wergley on Twitter. Because you flew Alex Aeromexico, he flew it from Schiphol to Mexico City. And even though they were not delayed, they were still handing glasses of water to people waiting at the gate. Nobody does that anymore. That's such a small thing to be able to do and just to take the edge off. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Usually people associate the edge off with a whiskey, yeah. not, not a glass, not of, a glass water. of water. But it's such a small thing, but it's, I think it's really, uh, it's nice. Talking about Mexico City International Airports, I've looked a bit into it since we talked about it in episode, what was it, 88, I think. Which, by the way, guys, you have to listen to because it lags a little bit in the stats because I had released the following one just a week after because of the 737 MAX. So if you haven't listened to episode 88, please go because Alex does a great job of describing Mexico City Airport and how he fell in love with Mexico as well, Mexico City. Less the airport, uh, but yeah. <laughs> it is the airport, clearly. <laughs> Don't forget to print in color. Uh <laughs> You had mentioned to me that they were thinking about this other airport, which was a bit dangerous in its approach, etc. Mm. Apparently, they're going ahead with it. Santa Lucia Airport, the construction will start next month. It's going to cost like $4 billion. Of course, it's less than whatever they had for the other one. And at the same time, they are adding a third terminal to Mexico City itself, to the airport you've been to, considering even a fourth one. Are they not trying to build like Lego pieces up to Lego pieces here? I don't know. I don't. But I, yeah, I'm not sure what they're doing and whether or not this will actually see the light of day because they've made this announcement a few times and, and things change and there's lobby, which sounds familiar for a third runway at an airport not too far from me or you. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't know what's going to happen there, but it does. God knows they need it. That airport is bursting at the seams and kind of falling apart too. Since you the delay of the third runway we had this uh, video that was sent to us by at morales why berlin's 15 year old airport has never had a flight it's by a youtube oh, channel geez. i didn't know it was called half as interesting there's one quote in there in that youtube movie that is so fun they called berlin the fire festival of airport <laughs> so that's <laughs> just perfect <laughs> My God. Well, I don't think we'll have it in our lifetimes. No. 
Yeah, another interesting feedback from David Shane at David underscore Shane on Twitter. We were talking about these lists of the best airports, I think, what, last episode, two episodes ago. I do think there's a bias towards the really big known airports in well about just any ranking list. He says, I've only been through Heathrow twice, but frankly, Detroit is much more pleasant. Yeah. So caveat, he then adds that I was flying Delta and been to the wrong parts of Heathrow. So yeah, Delta is T4, so clearly it's It's a strange one, but no, I would, I, it's not a fun airport to transit through unless you're staying in the same terminal. And even then it's not a lot of fun. You're right, David. You're right, David. Uh, I've never been to Detroit. I don't think I've been to Detroit. I haven't been, I to, haven't Detroit. been to Detroit either. I've been to Detroit by car, that I know that, but have I been to the airport? Well, we should actually go to Detroit if you say it's more pleasant than Heathrow. I believe it. <laughs> uh, Ryan Banks at rbanks03 on Twitter is very excited to hear that you are, Alex, visiting Toronto this summer. I am. <laughs> uh, he hopes this means that you will get his Toronto dedicated episode, as many have requested. Yes, of course. Once he goes there, we will cover Toronto Airport. Oh, yeah, we'll yeah, be- yeah. And we may or may not be filming an attache there. Look, Ryan, I hope we're not going to disappoint you. Yeah, well, I'm uh, going in a month. So if you've got any... Oh, it's in a month. Yeah, oh. and any any tips, any anything that we should uh, make sure we eat or do, I want to know about it. Looking forward to it. Kyle Potter, Potter MN on Twitter, tells us we have to fly EVA. And he adds, it's better than Singapore business class. That is quite a yeah. statement. And he also flew the Hello Kitty plane, which is fun. He actually says about the quality of EVA Air that it is truly a life-changing experience. Wow. That also is quite a statement. <laughs> I've always heard good things about them. I need to fly them. I've been desperate to do a, an episode in Taiwan. So if um, anybody wants to help us get out there, then let me know. Maybe we should reach out to the uh, founder of Starlux and say we should do the inaugural flight of Starlux between Heathrow and Taipei and have the entire flight for attaché. I think that's a great idea. I think the guy has some money on the side, like some pocket money can dedicate can, that. Yeah, exactly. Well, money well flight. spent. There you go. We have it covered. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last piece of news before we move to the airport. This one is again in the U.S., I think we had talked about because our podcast is so old. What, five years? Yeah. Do you remember, I think Pittsburgh Airport was trialing, allowing you to pass TSA security without a boarding pass. Yeah. I'm accompanying fa- That's okay. right. So, oh, yeah. Yes. So apparently SeaTac is launching the similar initiative as well. And the third airport to do that in the US, Tampa, uh, it's only available on Saturdays. <laughs> Limited to 25 people per air site per day, and you need to sign up in advance, I guess, for security. 25? Reasons. Yeah, 25. That's not a whole lot of per- people. Yeah, exactly. So it's probably only AV geeks, but still cool to it is. That- yeah, yeah, it is cool. Were you able to walk to the aircraft in Innsbruck? <laughs> Or was it a bus? Tell us about this bus story, because I'm like, now it's been 10 days and I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I described the airport in the last episode. It's very small. It's very beautiful. It's very easy, very well appointed, lots of facilities, kids play area, good restaurant, beautiful, long viewing deck. It's a similar gate situation to London City Mm -hmm. in that the planes are all right there in front of you, except that in London City, you walk down some stairs and then out into the onto the ramp, whereas here you're at the same level. All of the gates are downstairs already. And our gate was right across from our plane, and you could see it. It must have been 30 feet away. 
good that we don't have to faff with buses. We walk right across the tarmac on this beautiful sunny day, and then buses pulled up. That's <laughs> that's weird. I'm maybe the, I'm sure those buses aren't for us. That would be idiotic. And so they boarded us first because we had the kids, and uh, the bus fills up, and we wait and we wait and we wait. I'm like, what's? I don't understand. Where are, is that? A different plane that's going to Gatwick, maybe, or something, or maybe to Manchester, <laughs> or maybe our plane is around the corner. And my wife was like, no, I bet you they're just holding us here, get everybody on, and then open the side doors and let us walk across just to corral everybody because it was a small airport. I thought, oh, that actually sounds pretty reasonable too. But no. And we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting like 15, 20 minutes on this bus. And then the bus backs up and turns around and parks next to the airplane and, and waits 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 and then opens the door and off we get. And the bus was running the whole time for like 40 minutes. I'm like, you know, this is a beautiful, salubrious place. And we're spewing, maybe it was an electric bus or CNG, I don't know. But still, I thought, is it a safety thing? Did they not have enough people to marshal us across the tarmac, say, or in the, in the way that they felt? It wasn't exactly a busy airport. <laughs> or is it a security thing? I'm sure they have their reasons, but it just felt, it was so unnecessary from my perspective because we could have walked across and been done with it much like they have at london city which is another reason why i love that airport so much it just it was we literally reversed pulled out turned around and parked <laughs> you know <laughs> I, i'm trying when you tell me story i'm trying to think it happened to me in some airport in the eastern part of europe i can't remember where but it's very similar and like you are thinking it looks ridiculous i don't know what the hell it was it was so strange <laughs> but other than that you said that you love that airport right? yeah I, it's it's a beautiful airport very efficient everybody was super friendly you know, like i said good good facilities you only need to arrive like minutes before you leave it's neat to watch on the other side of the airfield from the main airport uh the gliders all coming in and landing and taking off it's a great region for gliding and you get you get neat airplanes uh, as well. But when we boarded, the captain came on the PA and said, as you probably will have noticed, we're surrounded by mountains here. So our departure protocol is a little bit different. The angle is going to be a little bit steeper and we keep the engines at full power for longer than normal. So it's nothing to worry about. But, you know, just, just so you know that it may feel a bit different from the takeoffs that you've experienced in the past, which I thought was neat. For him to take the time to explain that. And you do. It's a it's similar to a London City departure, except with London City, you sit on the runway and you, you spool up your engines and you let the parking brake go and you rock it and you pull up quickly and then you go up and you level off. Yeah. Here you, in Innsbruck, you don't do that. You, you do all of those steps except you keep going up and then you turn right down this valley, you know, continuing your ascent. And of course, you're already at altitude. So, you know, the engines are working that much harder. So it's it's fun. I, I, a lovely little airport in a wonderful city. It's considered a Category C airport in Europe, which means that it is challenging, both on landing and departures. It's the same category as you just mentioned, London City. The pilots, the crew has to have had special training for that specific landing, a specific departure. I read somewhere, I was looking at it, that out of uh, more than 4,000 EasyJet pilots, only 140 have the qualification to do Innsbruck, similar numbers for BA. So it's very, very uh, specific. I found a quote from, a, I think it was Thomas Cook pilot who said, uh, 
The passenger may be thinking, oh, beautiful mountains, lovely church. Oh, look, we've landed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, uh, yeah, but it's very challenging visually. There's low-level wind shear. There's turbulences. There's highways, there's terrain. There's a lot of things that are complicated. Yeah. And also, it's an airport that on a beautiful day is usual, but then it gets much more complicated when you have like lots of fog. I think even most aircraft cannot land if the cloud ceiling is below 850 feet. To which actually some, maybe BA, I know that Thomas Cook has it, they have additional technologies with the use of GPS and other technologies to actually allow them to land even if the cloud ceiling is as low as 350. It's very, uh, very interesting. I didn't realize how difficult it was and how many diversions could happen, especially in the winter, because it's a very seasonal airport, as in most of the airlines fly there a lot in the winter. And then when summer arrives, it's way less traffic. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. You look on Wikipedia with a list and it's like four or five regular airlines and then a host of seasonal airlines. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of videos on YouTube if you want to see both the landing and the departures from the cockpit points of view. It's really cool. Yeah. There's been on ITV, which is a network, a TV network here in the UK, a new show called EasyJet Inside a Cockpit. Actually, their first episode, which was, I think, very recent, was Innsbruck. Oh, cool. <laughs> and showing all, you know, the, the gale force winds, all the complications that they had to do to, to land at an airport like that. And never had realized when you were talking about this, Alex, in the last episode, how challenging it was. There's not a lot of Category C airports in Europe. I mean, besides a lot of general aviation ones, we're talking about ones that have regular flights. Salzburg is one that is... Is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, all... it's not that far from Innsbruck, so yeah, it's not, exactly. not too surprising. Bern in Switzerland, but come on, this is more general aviation. There's uh, Klagenfurt in Austria as well. So Austria seems to have a lot of these uh, as well. In other places like in Greece, for instance, both Mykonos and Santorini, which are two islands, are also considered a Category C because a lot of the winds... A lot of the islands actually do that. Gibraltar, obviously, is not an island, but it has that. Madeira has that as well. I think the ones in Corsica, also Category C, need special training. Uh, Tivati, Montenegro, which I've seen, I've not landed at, is also a seaside airport, also has mm -hmm. that. And so London City is really the, the one odd out, the only one that is a Category C, not because of other mountains or winds, but mostly because there's buildings next to it. <laughs> yeah, which is just as scary. Guys, if you're interested, there's a lot of articles about how to land and how to depart from Innsbruck as a pilot. Lots of videos. It's fascinating how hard it seems to be. Yeah. But the payoff is the views. Yeah, it's a fun. I didn't land there, but my wife did. I just took off. It looks it looks cool. What were you flying with a 320? 320. There you go. So this time we do have next flights, at least for me. Again, this episode is going to be released after I come back. I'll be going to Amsterdam. It's a very short flight with BA. When is your next flight? In, let's see, two weeks to Tel Aviv. Ha! On Swiss so, Air in business on a 777. So that'll be a first for me. Oh, that is awesome. So probably we'll be recording just after he comes back from that. But again, guys, in advance, apologies if suddenly we have a three weeks delay between episodes. Uh, we'll try to have another one in two weeks. On that, happy travels. Safe travels, guys. <laughs>